Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Dwayne, and uh, welcome to Directional Bible Ministries. Today is August the 2nd. Uh, this is a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. And of course, I gotta admit, uh, that starts with encouraging, discipling, and challenging myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first and foremost. So, but anyway, we have been working our way through the book of Acts. Uh, today we are on session 25. Session 25. We've been going at this for quite some time. Um, I just want to show a page here to you. This right here is the Directional Bible Ministries. Um, Website, uh, you can get here by going to uh, DwayneSpearman.org or you can just type in directionalministries.blogspot.com. And um, here um, is where I place all of my notes. So for last week, uh, Acts Study Session 24, 13, 1 through 31, uh, there is all the notes uh, for that study. For you guys take a look at and everyone every study prior to that and then also uh, of course you can go back i started this blog back in 2007 um and and then uh right here is all the audio studies uh i do take uh, the studies and i put them onto soundcloud and then soundcloud distributes them to all kinds of podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, uh, where you can listen there. Um, and you can see those studies there. And then I also upload these studies from Facebook to, um, to YouTube. And you can go on and see all those studies. So anyway, uh, it's all there. Uh, I did start a study through Daniel. Uh, but I only got through session nine and decided I wanted to focus on the book of Acts. So we may come back to that later. Um, got a little bit of my faith, you know, what I deem to be the essentials and what I deem to be the non-essentials. Uh, you can check out all of that. Uh, that's on the Directional Bible Ministries website. So um, today what we're going to be doing is we're going to pick up where we left off last week, uh, which is uh, in verse number 31 of uh, Acts chapter number 13. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles and just for a little bit of context, um, let's look at verse uh, Acts 13, 13, and um, we're going to just for context get down to verse number 31, 32, where we're going to pick up our study. Now, when Paul and his company loose from Paphos, they came to Pergam, Pamphylia, and John departed from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went down into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading, after the reading of the law and the prophets and the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, ye that fear God, give audience. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt to strangers in the land of Egypt with a high arm and brought he them out of it. In about that time, forty years, he suffered their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. 
And after he gave unto them judges in about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and he gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by a space of about forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to this promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. And that's where Paul was going. And when John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance unto all people, and as John fulfilled his course, <clears throat> he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. Behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is this word of salvation sent. For they that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath day, and they have fulfilled them, condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet they desired Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee. To Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. And that's where we're going to pick up today. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. Do ask that you go before us today. You bless the reading of your word. And Father, you would continue uh, to, to, uh, Strengthen us uh, to disciple us, to challenge us by opening our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to understand in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, verse number 32. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, comma, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he raised Jesus again, as is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The promise unto the fathers began in Genesis chapter number 12, verse number 1, when God came to Abraham. Understand, all of mankind was running along, lost and without nothing. And then God chose Abraham out of all the, all the people of the earth. He chose Abraham, and he started making promises to Abraham. And as you begin to understand right division, you'll come to understand that the promises have to do with the nation of Israel. The prophecies have to do with the nation of Israel. We get in trouble when we start inserting the body of Christ into the promises and into the prophecies. That's where we get into trouble. And I love to sit down. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to sit down with a young person, and I began to ask her questions about when did the church begin? Of course, unfortunately, she didn't know the answer to that question. And we're talking about a young person that goes to church very uh, devotedly. Uh, it's just not taught. We do not rightly divide the word. Heck, we don't even preach the word anymore. Uh, we preach uh, five-part sermons on how to be happily married. You know, I mean, we just we do not teach the word of God from our pulpits anymore. 
And, you know, I, I've made this comment before. I mean, good luck on preaching on a whole eight-part series on how to be mar- happily married, because the New Testament really doesn't deal with marriage much. There's only less than a half a dozen verses in the New Testament. I mean, so where are we getting this stuff? You know, I mean, we're not teaching the Bible. We are selectively pulling verses out of the Scripture, and we're building pep talks, self-improvement, you know, lessons. We've become life coaches in many ways. A lot of pastors have become life coaches. They are not teaching the Word of God anymore. Um, the promises have to do with the nation of Israel. Pentecost has to do with the nation of Israel, which was was to be the fulfillment of those promises. But if you don't know the promises, then you don't realize what the significance of Pentecost is. But obviously, the context dictates that he is speaking specifically about the resurrection of the Messiah. That is what he's focusing on, because in verse number 29, and when they fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. That is the promises that he's looking at. In Psalm chapter 16, verse number 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Those are promises, and I believe every verse in the book of Psalms is prophetic. It's prophetic. Uh, We teach the book of Psalms like it's just a bunch of poetry. Uh, It is not. It is prophecy. The book of Psalms is full of prophecy. This is further proven by the next verse when he quotes Psalm 2. Um, And we'll look at that. But also worth pointing out here is that the promises made to the fathers is a reference to the Jewish fathers in regards to salvation, the restoration of the nation, all earthly, all physical, all Israel. The promises have to do with the nation of Israel, not the body of Christ, the church. Now, I would, for a while there, I'd swing back and say the bride of Christ, but if you rightly divide the word of truth, you'll realize that we are not the bride of Christ. The nation of Israel is betrothed to God, not the the body of Christ. Just because God uses, or Paul uses, the marriage um, in Ephesians to make a comparison between Christ and his church does not make us the bride. Uh, the book of Revelation makes that abundantly clear in Revelation chapter number 20. Notice in verse number 33, and we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus again, as it is written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, and this day have I begotten thee. He is quoting from Psalm chapter number 2, verses 1 through 7, which I have come to see as an outline of the Old Testament program. Because in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Who are the heathen? (laughs) Well, the heathen are the Gentiles and the people. Why is he separating the heathen from the people? He's separating the Jew from the Gentile. Uh, He did that when he called Abraham out. He separated the the Jew from the Gentile. So why do the Gentiles raised and the Jews imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth, referring to the Gentiles, have 
have set themselves and the rulers take counsel, referring to the Jews together against the Lord and against his anointed. Jew and Gentile, Roman and Jew, took counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, which would be Jesus. And notice he says, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. So let us, Jew and Gentile, break their bands. And of course, he's referring to the Godhead there, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and cast away their cords from us. He that setteth in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. Understand, this is a prophecy about the crucifixion. Let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. They took counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, and they crucified him. In verse 4, and he that sits in the heavens, God the Father, will laugh, and he will have them in derision, and he will speak unto them in his wrath. What should have happened after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ? The wrath, the, the tribulation and vex them in his sore displeasure, and yet I will set my king upon my holy hill. That's the second coming and the establishment of the kingdom. And I will declare the the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So Paul is referring back to that. That is a synopsis, if you will, the cliff notes of the Old Testament program. Um, And understand what that is saying in context is Christ came, He said the kingdom of heaven is is nigh. They crucified him. They had to crucify him. They unwittingly, unknowingly, in ignorance crucified him to fulfill the Old Testament. And then he he rose from the dead. Peter offered them the kingdom, which had they accepted it, and this is where my journey began in right division, had they accepted it, the, he would have vexed them in his sore displeasure. The tribulation period would have, would have began, and seven years later would have culminated with the second coming and the establishment of the kingdom, and God would have used the nation of Israel to use, to reach the Gentiles. That was the plan. And Psalm lays that out. Now notice in verse number 34, and as concerning that he raised him from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, this can't be talking about David. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. So obviously the psalm uh, that that Paul is referring to here is prophesying about Jesus, not about David. So Christ's resurrection was proof that he was the only begotten Son of God. And understand, when it says that he is the only begotten Son of God, I do not believe that's referring to he is the only Son of God, but it is referring to the resurrection. Okay, He is the only begotten Son of God. He's the only one to raise from the dead. In uh, Romans chapter 1, verse number 4, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated into the gospel of God, which he promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. 
concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And of course, both Mary and Joseph were descendants of David and declared to be the son of God. How? With power, according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. So when the Bible refers to him being the only begotten son of God, it is referring to the fact that he, it is referring to the resurrection. It was the power of God that raised Christ from the dead and proved that he was truly the son of God. The resurrection was the proof of everything that he had said. That is why the resurrection is the heart of the gospel. Without the resurrection, there would be no gospel. And we walk in that same power today. That power that raised Christ from the dead is the power of the deutimus that we walk in today. I mean, you think of Peter before and after, before he denied Christ before a child, after he defied the Jewish leadership. The resurrection is the heart of, of the gospel. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse number 12, notice it says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there be no resurrection from the dead? I mean, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ did not rise. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. You're wasting your time. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. In other words, we're liars, because we all told you, we testified to you that we saw the risen Savior. For if, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And guys, if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and ye are yet in your sins. You're still in your sins. So when he says, as concerning him that raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he quotes from the psalm, and he says, David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell asleep, and he saw corruption. He didn't come back, but he whom God raised again saw no corruption, which is referring to Jesus Christ. Paul here is preaching the resurrection. That is the difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace. The gospel of the kingdom is Christ. The gospel of grace is the resurrection, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the difference. And then notice in verse number 38, this is the first time in Scripture that the gospel of grace is clearly being taught. Be it known unto you, therefore. In other words, in lieu of everything that I've just said, be it known unto you, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Here it is, the first time in Scripture that the gospel of grace is being taught. Previously, under the gospel of the kingdom, it was about keeping the law. It was about baptism of repentance. But now it is about belief. In Acts 36, therefore let, notice when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, therefore let all the house of Israel know surely that God hath made this same Jesus who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
And when they heard this, they were pricked to the heart. He's not preaching the resurrection. He is preaching Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what what shall we do now? And Peter said unto them, what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission, not the forgiveness, but the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the Holy Ghost. That is the difference under the gospel of the kingdom and under the gospel of grace. The gospel of the kingdom was about keeping the law and the baptism of repentance. The gospel of grace is about believing. And I mentioned this uh, in our weekly studies every morning, 8 o'clock, or at 6.30 now. There is a slight difference between remission and forgiveness. Remission is a cancellation of a debt, a charge, or a penalty. Forgiveness is the action or process of forgiving, but the root word means to stop feeling anger or resentful towards someone for an offense, a flaw, a mistake. Again, the words are similar, but they're not exactly the same. And I am developing a strong opinion that one should not be confused and applied to the other. I believe it's more appropriate to say remission in, into, in regards to the end result of the gospel of the kingdom, where they receive remission of sins, and forgiveness in regards to the end result of the gospel of grace, where their sins are not just remitted, but they are forgiven. Okay? And notice he says, all that believe are justified from all things. Now notice the word all. This means everyone, not just the Jew. Peter preached to only the Jew. Jesus preached to only the Jew. John the Baptist preached to only the Jew. The apostles preached to only the Jew. But now he's saying all, all that believe, believe what? Believe in the resurrection, are justified from all things that were justified. Peter clearly taught that justification came through keeping the law. And, you know, Paul talked about this in Romans 2.13, for not the hearers of the law are justified before God, but the doers of the law are justified. Peter clearly taught the law. And I've been, this is where the light has come on for me in many ways. Uh, When you read the Hebrew epistles, and why do we call them the Hebrew epistles? Because they were written to the Hebrews. <laughs> okay. So that's Hebrews through the book of Revelation. It's, they're Hebrew epistles. They're written to the Hebrews. Now, when you read Paul's epistles, the Pauline letters, who were they written to? Romans through Philemon. They were written to Gentiles predominantly. He's talking about the body of Christ. So we get confused because we do not rightly divide truth from truth. The Hebrew epistles are written to the Hebrews. The Pauline epistles are written to the Gentiles. But when we take the Hebrew epistles and we try to mix them with the Pauline epistles, we end up with a work salvation. We end up conflating the gospel of the kingdom with the gospel of grace. We end up inserting law into grace, therefore nullifying grace. That's what we end up doing. Um. The Hebrew epistles were written to Jews who were still under the law. And the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all law, all under the law. Christ said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. 
They were still preaching the law. That's why they cast lots for Matthias. I can't tell you how many commentators I've read that's critical of them for casting lots for Matthias. Why did they cast lots for Matthias? Because they were still under the law. Bear in mind, we're in Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 26. They still went to the temple in Acts chapter number 3 and verse number 1. They still went into the temple at the hour of prayer. Why were they still in the temple? Because they were still part of Judaism. They were still receiving the, the receiving of the Spirit was contingent upon obedience. They had to repent and they had to be baptized. The baptism of remission of sin, which is what John the Baptist came preaching, in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Today, we don't have to do that. And that baptism of repentance required water. It had to happen. But when you take that and you try to apply that to the body of Christ today, you end up with the doctrine, the erroneous doctrine of baptismal regeneration, that you have to be baptized to be saved. Why are they doing that? Because they are taking the law and they're putting it in grace and therefore nullifying grace. Ananias was a devout man, the Bible says, according to the law. We're in Acts chapter number 22, folks. (laughs) Ananias was a devout man according to the law. Of course, he's referring back to Acts chapter number 9 when Ananias came to Paul. This is Paul giving his testimony, looking back to Acts chapter number 9. Peter's vision before going to Cornelius' house proves that he was still under the law. In Acts chapter number 10, when the heavens opened and and the vessel descended, it it was on this great sheet knit at the four corners and all manner of four-footed beasts and wild creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice unto him said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Why would Peter respond that way in Acts chapter number 10? Because Peter was still very much under the law. He was still under the dietary law, according to Leviticus chapter number 11. Paul teaches here, in these verses, for the first time, that justification was the result of belief and belief alone. This is the first time the gospel of grace is being preached. And of course, he... he, he, he fleshed all that out in Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Paul preached the gospel of grace from this point forward. Notice in verse number 40, Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which shall nowise, that ye shall nowise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Now, what is he referring to here? I mean, he just gave the gospel of grace, and now he's dipping back into Habakkuk chapter 1, verse number 5, and saying, Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which was spoken of in the prophets. And he begins to paraphrase Habakkuk chapter 1, verse number 5. Remember, context is the key. When Old Testament scriptures are quoted in the New Testament, 
the original meaning cannot be construed to say something else. It always means what it what it said when it was said. It cannot take on a new meaning. In other words, unlike what many commentators say, it cannot be referring to a warning against rejecting the gospel of grace. Because he just gave the gospel of grace here in 38 and 39. And now he's given this warning. Okay? Because why? Because Habakkuk did not know the gospel of grace. So Habakkuk could not have been giving them a warning against rejecting the gospel of grace because he did not know anything about the gospel of grace. No one did until it was revealed to Paul. Paul was the first to hear the gospel of grace. In Colossians 1.25, Where have I made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery that hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now has been made manifest. So Habakkuk, there's no way Habakkuk could have been referring to the gospel of grace in this warning. Instead, let's stick with the context. Paul is simply reminding his audience that God is capable of bringing judgment down upon those who refuse to follow him, which is exactly what happened to the nation, okay, when they, well, in the Old Testament, when they didn't heed the prophets and God brought the Chaldean, brought the Babylonians down upon them, and he's warning them that that can happen again. And it did happen again in 70 AD as a result of them officially rejecting the kingdom offer. Romans brought judgment in 70 AD, just like the Babylonians did that Habakkuk was referring to in chapter one and verse number five. So again, Habakkuk is not referring to the rejection of the gospel of grace. Okay. Instead, the rejection of the kingdom, which led to the destruction. In other words, Habakkuk was warned in the nation of Israel, if you do not heed the teaching of the prophets, the Babylonians are going to fall down on you. And Paul is saying, in like manner, if you do not heed, these things are going to happen to you. Um, so anyway, just very interesting study there, and people really get lost in the weeds there, how he transitions from the gospel of grace, and then all of a sudden he starts quoting the Old Testament. He's just saying, God will bring judgment to you. Um, and understand, Rome had not fought, Rome had not, 70, 70 AD had not come yet. Um, and then notice in verse number 42, and when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So after the Jews left, the Gentiles wanted to hear more about this gospel of grace. Now, did the Jews accept what Paul was saying? Maybe some did, but I think most of them did not, because we're going to find out here later on in the text that these unbelieving Jews are going to continue to come after Paul and his cohorts. But the Gentiles, now who were these Gentiles? There were Gentiles in the synagogues. Gentiles were not allowed into the temple, at least not past the court of the Gentiles. But there were Gentiles in the synagogues. 
and these Gentiles were people who were interested in Judaism, some of which had already become proselytes. But I think most of them were just interested in Judaism. So after the Jews left, the Gentiles wanted to hear more about this gospel of grace that he had just spoken to them about. Because bear in mind, before the gospel of grace, the Gentiles were without hope. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul said that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And now all of a sudden, Paul is saying, you've got hope. And they want to hear more about this. Now notice in verse number 43. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and the religious proselytes, that's referring to the Gentiles, followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. That grace of God that he had just preached in 38 and 39. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. So after the service was over, they continued to persuade them. To, to persuade is to convince by offering arguments of proof. They began, they continued to persuade them, both Jew and Gentile alike, in regards to the grace of God. To convince them of what? Forgiveness of sins to all that believe and are justified from all things that they could not be justified in the law of Moses. This was revolutionary. This was, I mean, this was previously unheard. This was hidden from all generations past, hidden in the Old Testament. The twelve knew nothing about this. And they, they, they were, they wanted to convince them of this gospel. And notice in verse number 45, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. So here are the Jews who chose not to believe. They had not accepted the kingdom gospel, and they were now rejecting the grace gospel, and they were now contradicting and blaspheming the apostle Paul. Now, obviously, what Paul was preaching was different, or they would not have responded in this way. If Paul was still preaching the gospel of the kingdom, pointing to the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled through Christ, they would not have responded this way. They responded this way because he was preaching something different. He was actually preaching that salvation has now been expanded to the Gentiles. And that's where he crossed the line. And they begin to contradict him, which to contradict somebody means to speak against what they're saying. And they begin to blaspheme. Now, I don't think he's referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, though maybe in an indirect way they were. More so, they're speaking evil of Paul. They were blaspheming Paul. They were rejecting Paul. They were pushing Paul away. They were speaking evil of him and contradicting him. Now notice, and this would be the story of Paul's ministry, his biggest enemies were unbelieving Jews, not believing Jews, not the Jews who had responded to the kingdom gospel, not the Jews that had responded to the grace gospel, but the unbelieving Jews were Paul's worst enemies. Now notice in verse number 46, then Paul and Barmas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, 
He's speaking to Jews. But seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. The word of God was first preached to the Jew via the kingdom gospel, under the hopes that they would accept it and be the light of the Gentiles that he desired for them to be. In Isaiah 49, verse number 6, And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. God wanted to use the Jew to reach the Gentile. But Paul is saying, you've rejected that. And again, Paul here is not twisting Old, the Old Testament verse in an effort to apply it to his own ministry and his own calling. Instead, remember that we've already said when the Old Testament scriptures are quoted in the New, the original meaning cannot be construed to say something else. So there's no way that this verse had Paul's ministry in mind any more that Habakkuk had the gospel of grace in mind when he said what he said. However, he is saying it in that, that 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 he knew not that he now knew that God was going to use him to do what they refused to do. In other words, he's saying God wanted to make you a light to the Gentiles, but you refused to do it. So now God is going to use me to do what you coulda, woulda, shoulda done. But now God is going to use me. And notice he said that it was necessary that the word of God should be should be spoken unto you. Paul mentioned this again in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now it seems to me from these verses that not only was the kingdom, the gospel kingdom, the kingdom gospel taken exclusively to them, the Jew, but also Paul tried to take the grace gospel to them first as well. But they rejected that one also. Can you imagine? These guys rejected two Gospels. That's why Paul always went to the synagogues first. He went there to find Jews. But in the end, he says, you proved yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. You've rejected both Gospels. The nation was continuing to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which was a sin that in its truest sense only Israel could commit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit occurred when the nation of Israel rejected the king and his kingdom. And unlike most commentaries, that did not happen at the crucifixion of Christ. That happened at the rejection of the gospel of the kingdom as given by Peter on Pentecost, twice and then by Stephen. And it was rejected, and that's when they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now notice in verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Now the word ordained here, I spent a lot of time on this in my own personal study, because, you know, the Calvinists, you know, they really jump up and down on verses like this. Um, 
because it sounds remarkably like predestination. Instead, it just means, the word ordained literally means to arrange in an orderly manner. And, of course, this happens when the Word of God is taught correctly. When you rightly divide, it all becomes arranged in an orderly manner. When you don't rightly divide, it falls apart. And to be honest with you, you end up contradicting the Scriptures. And the Scriptures do not make sense. That's why you hear people say today, you got to repent and be baptized. But it's by faith and faith alone. Well, you just told me I had to repent and be baptized. That's works. You're, you're attaching works with faith. You know, well, if you got the faith, you will do this. No, you are conflating the gospel of the kingdom with the gospel of grace. Okay. And that's what happens when people take these verses and they do not rightly divide them. The word ordain means to arrange in an orderly manner. And that's what's happening when the word of God is taught. As that is done, people choose to believe or not to believe. Again, it's not the altar call that saves a man. It's not the sinner's prayer that saves a man. It's belief, period. Okay? And I've went over the Lord's Prayer. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you for forgiveness. I believe you died. Yeah, I mean, you believe all of that, but you don't have to say all of that to be saved. That happens the moment you are saved. The moment you sit there and you say, I believe that. You don't have to say it. You acknowledge that. I believe that. The Bible says you've been converted. Okay? It's not water baptism. It's not walking the aisle on just as I am. It's not speaking in tongues. It's just belief. And once you believe, you're saved. Then notice in verse number 50, But the Jews stirred up the devout and the honorable women, and the chief men of the city, and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. And like clockwork, the Jews, these unbelieving Jews, came out against him, and they were once again thrown out. (laughs) And what did they do? They shook the dust off their feet against them as a testimony to their rejection of the truth. In other words, we're done with you. We're going to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul did. And then we end up in in chapter number 14. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude, both of Jews and also Greeks, believed. Now, again, they're going to the synagogue. You know, Acts 13, 51, but they shook the dust off their feet against them and came into Iconium. So they're coming into Iconium, and they're preaching in the synagogue of the Jews. And guess what? Some Jews believed, and some Greeks believed. Now, interestingly, from this point forward, Luke, who's the writer of Acts, when he uses the term, when he speaks of the synagogue, he attaches the synagogue of the Jews. Now, and as we move forward, Acts 17, 1, and when they came to pass, they came to Ephesus, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Luke begins to start differentiating between the Jews and the Gentiles, and I believe that's what's happening. Remember, the book of Acts is a book of transitioning. We're going from Peter to Paul. We're going from kingdom to grace. We're going from Jerusalem to Antioch, okay? 
Uh, we're going from um, the kingdom church to the body of Christ. We're going from um, from the teaching of Peter to the teaching of Paul. It's a book of transition. It needs to be viewed that way. Even if he doesn't use the specific phrase, synagogue of the Jews, he goes out of his way to indicate clearly who Paul is talking to. And I have found in my study of the book of Acts, you need to pay attention to the pronouns. Look at the pronouns and who he is talking to. There is a difference between them and us. <laughs> okay. Are they and we? Um, Paul never ceased to become a Jew. He was always a Jew. Okay. Um, also, the Greek word Hellene indicating Gentiles and not Greek speaking Jews. So when they use that word Greeks here, it's not speaking of the Hellenists, which are mentioned in Acts chapter number six, which is referring to Greek speaking Jews, but it's referring to the Hellenes, which is just Gentiles. Greeks were Gentiles. Um, and then notice in verse number two, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds ill-affected or evil-affected against the brethren. Again, understand that these unbelieving Jews are not those who had accepted the kingdom nor the grace gospels. They were religious Jews. And I can tell you emphatically, there's nothing more dangerous than a religious person. Okay. <laughs> I have been hurt more so in my life by religious people than anybody else. And trust me, churches are full of unconverted religious people. These were religious Jews, but they were lost. And I can tell you emphatically, nothing is more dangerous than a religious person. There's a big difference between a wolf bite and a sheep bite. <laughs> they always move in and act in the flesh because that's who they are. They are natural. They are fleshly. Again, further proof that Paul is speaking something other than the kingdom gospel, or they would not be responding this way. And yes, to your point, Scott, it's just becoming clearer and clearer and clearer as we move our way. We are going to ultimately make the final transition until we are going to gloriously erupt in Romans chapter number one and verse number one. <laughs> Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which is promised for by his prophets in the Holy, Holy Scriptures. Okay. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God. How? With power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. Okay. So Acts is a transition. If you took the book of Acts out and you just went from John to Romans, it wouldn't make a bit of sense. And actually it would justify most of the confusion that we have in the church today. But the fact that we do have the book of Acts should clarify all of that, <laughs> all of that confusion today. Again, if we would but rightly divide. They no doubt saw Paul's teaching as a perversion of Judaism. That's why they were coming at him. The audacity of this guy who claims to be an apostle saying that the Gentile can be, you know, saved, can be forgiven. Then notice in verse number three, let me get back. I got on my soapbox there for a little bit. 
Long time therefore abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Notice the word of his grace. This speaks of the grace gospel. (laughs) The next logical step uh, is the book of Romans for sure. Now, I can only assume, now notice, they were granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. I can only assume that the signs and the wonders were the benefit of the Jews, not the Gentiles. Because the Bible makes it very clear that the the Jews require a sign. So, in other words, the Jew is still being offered this. Even the Jews that had rejected, they were being offered this with signs and wonders. It had to been for the benefit of those Jews, not the Gentiles, because obviously the Gentiles didn't need that. And yet today we we still talk about signs and wonders. Uh, the signs and wonders are for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. So why are we looking for that? And then number four, but the multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the Apostles. Now that the Gentiles were excited about hearing this new message, the unbelieving, as already identified, were still unbelieving Jews who still were causing division in the city. They were apparently still contradicting and blaspheming, just like Acts 4.13.45. And notice it says that part held with the Jews and part held with the apostles. Now, this brings us to another turn here. The apostles spoken of here cannot be referring to the twelve. They were not present. It has to be referring to Paul and Barnabas. And even more, because when we get down into verse number 14, which when the apostles... Barnabas and Paul, that's not referring to the twelve, heard they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out. So it can't be referring to them. Okay? So <clears throat> we, we, we all readily speak of the 13 apostles, which includes Paul for sure, but the scripture is pretty clear that there were more. Now, with that said, none existed before Jesus nor after the rejection of the kingdom offer. I believe after the rejection of the kingdom offer, the office of apostle uh, disappeared. Uh, And I can say the same thing, though maybe not as dogmatically, the office of prophet, uh, because prophecy is for the nation of Israel. So, uh, and of course, we love to dabble in all those things today in the church and talk about apostles and prophets. Uh, the apostles and prophets were given to the nation of Israel. And as per the previous verse, they also performed signs and wonders for the benefits <clears throat> of the Jews. Um, one mark of apostleship was the performance of signs and wonders. And I believe that Paul was still taking part in that ministry, and even Barnabas and those who were with them. And then notice in verse number five, and when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, 
they were aware of it and fled into Lystra and Derby to the cities of Laconia and unto the region that lieth round about. Now, on the run again. Now, notice the word assault here. That word assault, if you look that word up, it just it, it doesn't mean that they acted physically against them. Acts 14.5, if you go and you look at this verse, um, it says here, ooh, the word assault, and there was an assault. It literally means a violent impulse, an onset. In other words, they were getting ready to do it, and Paul perceived that they were getting ready to do it. Okay, and of course, he continued to preach the grace gospel. Now, many people believe that Timothy may have been converted during this visit because we know from Acts chapter 16, verse number one, that Timotheus was from this area, Timothy. So he and his family may have been some of the converts here in, in Acts chapter number 14. Now, notice it says they continued to preach the gospel. Now, of course, they preach the gospel. This is the grace gospel. It literally means evangelized. And I'm still studying this, and you do it on your own. But um, <clears throat> when Paul uses the word gospel here, it, it literally means evangelizo, to, to evangelize. They continue to evangelize by preaching this grace gospel. Now, notice in verse number eight, and, and just for your study and for mine, it appears to be a different word than the word that the apostles use for the kingdom gospel. But you study that. I am, I'm, I'm nowhere near trying to make a, a, a statement in regards to that. I'm just finding it interesting, just as I found some other things that I've come to believe and come to reject um, in regards to this, this word gospel here. Now notice in verse number eight. <clears throat> And there was a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. And the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leapt and he walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in the speech of Laconia, The gods are come down unto us in the likeness of men. Now, remember back in number three, they had been granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And Paul, it says, he perceived that this man had the faith to be healed. How did he do this? He steadfastly beheld him. In other words, Paul watched this guy. Maybe it just means that Paul saw something in him as a result of his response to the previous miracles that this guy had most likely had witnessed, and Paul just perceived that this guy had the faith. He wanted to be made well. We just do not know. We don't want to read something into the text that's just not there. However, I am not content with that. So I looked at this phrase, uh, and I looked it up. Uh, this phrase, um, and the first time I found it is in Matthew 9, um, when it talks about the faith. Um, for he said within himself, if I may but touch the garment, I will be whole. Now, this is the woman who, who broke through the crowd and touched the garment of Christ to be made well. But Jesus turned 
him about. And when he saw her, he said, daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith has made thee whole. So that's the same faith that Paul was looking at here when he said, perceiving that he had the faith to be healed. That faith is first mentioned in Matthew 9, 21. And for the sake of time, it's also mentioned in Matthew 9, 28, Luke 7, Luke 17, Luke 18. Now, in regards to this faith that the woman had to be made well, I like what Albert Barnes says here. He says, her faith, her strong confidence in Jesus had been the means of her restoration. In other words, she would not have broke through the crowd and made her way to Jesus if she did not have faith in what Jesus could do. Understand? It was the power of Jesus that cured her. But that power would not have been exerted but in connection with her faith. So her faith is what drove her through the crowd to Jesus. But Jesus is the one that cured her by his power. So in the salvation of a sinner, no one is saved who does not believe. But the belief, the faith that God can heal, that God can save, is the instrument that God uses to save. Uh, I found that quite interesting because the faith is what moves us toward God. The belief is what moves us toward God. And then God does the salvation. So I think that's what that's referring to there in those verses in regards to the healing of this man. Now notice in verse number 11, or verse number 12, and they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. So in response to this healing, they identified Paul and Barnabas as gods, Jupiter and Mercury. And the reason they did this takes a little bit of historical context. Their response is no doubt in full knowledge of the writings of Ovid, who was popular. His name was Publius Ovidius Nasum. He was a Roman poet who lived during the reign of Augustus. He was a contemporary of Virgil and Horace, and he wrote the story of Philemon and Bacchus, who were an elderly couple who unwittingly entertained the Greek gods Jupiter and Mercury, also known as Zeus and Hermes to the Romans, as the they were the only ones in their town to show them hospitality. And in return, they rewarded them with one wish for anything that they wanted, and then they destroyed their village. So now, Paul and Barnabas comes in. He shows an act of hospitality to the people here, and they immediately compare them to Jupiter and Mercury in the story of Philemon and Bacchus. And they begin to call um, <clears throat> they begin to call Barnabas Jupiter, and they begin to call uh, Paul Mercurius. Um, and what this shows is, and I'll conclude, well, no, I might get a little further here, that it should be a lesson to us that people will always respond based on their worldview. You see, these 
unbelieving Gentiles, when they saw Paul and Barnabas bringing healing, they immediately, their worldview was based upon these Greek myths, and they immediately identified them as Jupiter and Mercury. A worldview is defined as a collection of beliefs about life and the universe held by an individual or group, and we all have one. We all have a filter through which we see the world. And that filter through which we see the world, we are given one by the way that we're raised. But it's hard to view outside of that filter. We must develop a biblical worldview as children of God. We cannot live our lives through the eyes of the unsaved. We cannot have the worldview of the Christ rejectors around us. We have to have a different worldview. And unfortunately, the old saying, the boat is all right in the ocean as long as the ocean does not come into the boat. Unfortunately, the ocean has come into the boat for the most part with the church. And this is where we'll conclude. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands into the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard, they rent their clothes, ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and sea and all things therein who in times past suffered nations to walk in their own ways. Now, of course, this is proof that this crowd was Gentiles, as the Jews never would have done this. The Jews' worldviews would not have done this. The Jew would have not have seen this and said, Oh, that's Mercury and Jupiter. <laughs> Obviously, they are speaking to Gentiles. Okay? Um, so, interestingly... Uh, when the Jews saw the miracles, they pointed them to God. So too with the Gentiles, but not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is like we all have a default that is based on how we see the world. I, I think I heard Charles when Chuck Swindoll say one time, life is 99% perspective, which leaves only 1% for reality. In other words, um, we all have a perspective through which we see things. And it may or may not, you know, you've heard the saying, perspective is reality. Well, perspective really is not reality, but it may be our perceived reality. Um, we all have a default that is based on our perspective, but our perspective does not make it true. And of course, Paul encourages them to turn from these vain beliefs to the true and the living God. And starting tomorrow morning, uh, we'll start getting into, nevertheless, he left himself not without a witness, referring to God. And of course, he's going to turn the people back to Jesus. <laughs> okay. And of course, uh, the unbelieving Jews are going to have him stoned. So we'll talk about that starting next week. But uh, it's been a privilege to be able to bring this Bible study to you guys. I appreciate each and every one of you and pray that God blesses you with the rest of your week. Um, and remember always that God does love you. He wants the best for you. And he is working all things out for our good. 
Um, again, the, the, this ministry is called to encourage you. I hope you've been encouraged. This ministry is called to disciple you, to, to study you, to teach you. Um, and I hope that we've done that and to challenge you. And I'm sure that many hear things that they've never heard before and they're challenged by them, but we need to grow by those things and see if these things be true or not. Well, God bless you guys. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day.